Hello and welcome to the latest Mill podcast. I'm sitting in the office with Mike Emmerich, who's a long-term Mill reader, a long-time Mill member, and we're here to talk about a lecture that you gave at the university. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. It's a pleasure to be back. <laughs> Is it two years since you sat in this office? and um... It's so long, I can't remember, but that could have been yesterday. <laughs> so we're going to talk about a lecture that you gave at the University of Manchester about economics, really, about how Manchester's changed, about what needs to change in the British economy to, to put ourselves on a better track. But before we do that... I just want to remind listeners of sort of who you are. So I wrote a profile of you a couple of years ago. You did? And I described you as Manchester's Foreign Secretary, which was a quote that had had come up. From Howard Bernstein, that's what he used to describe me. Yeah, because you were instrumental in the negotiations for the first big devolution deal for Greater Manchester, the one that created the Andy Burnham mayoral job, um, and really the first step in this kind of modern city-region-based devolution process. So you did that. You worked for the city, effectively, in an economics role. You worked for Number 10 under Tony Blair. Yep, under Tony Blair. I've seen a picture of you and and Blair grinning around a very old, sort of chunky computer. On my office wall at home. (laughs) On your office wall. And you worked in the Treasury before that. I did. So that would have been Gordon Brown. It would indeed. And before that, you had various other sort of advisory roles. You grew up in Manchester. I did. In Wally Range and Chalton. Went to school in Withenshaw. (laughs) So you were at school at what kind of time? Secondary school from 1977, left in the summer of 1982. Okay, fine. So that situates who you are as a person. Yeah. And um, we're going to talk about your life, but also we're going to talk about this this lecture you gave that was fascinating. First of all, I'd like to thank our sponsors for this podcast. Who are they? Who are they? Good question. My first question to you is, have you been to RHS Bridgewater? Oh, I've been several times. And the first time I went, I loved it so much that uh, Jessica, my wife and I, became RHS members because I think it's a much needed addition to the city. So describe it for people who haven't been. Well, if you take the bit of scruffy land that was the gardens of the U-Hall by the Manchester Ship Canal, what RHS had managed to do is to carve out of that a garden that is honestly, at very least national, if not European or even world-class in places, in that it's a visitor attraction for people who don't do football or... um, uh, or I perhaps do do football, but who don't want to do football that day, Mm. uh, that's world-class and it is enormous and utterly beautiful planted with amazing creativity amazing diversity mm. and it's growing right there in Salford not three or four miles from where we're sat it's it's a great great place to go a day out lovely cafe great garden center love it so that's the backdrop to our advertiser this specific event that we're advertising sponsored today's edition is glow which is a sort of festival of lights at RHS Garden Bridgewater in Salford. So you've got a magical sort of winter light trail. They've got interactive sculptures that allow you to create your own light art. They've got festive food. They've got festive drink. You've, they've got our gift shop there. So Glow is currently ongoing. I'm actually going with my girlfriend on next Saturday, I think. Um, you can miss the Newcastle game. So I'm going to miss... Is it the Newcastle game? Yeah, next Saturday I may be missing that. Whenever I go to one of these lights things, there's always a United game on. <laughs> so yeah, I probably will. But I'm looking forward to it. If you're listening to this and you'd like to go, go to the to the Glow RHS Bridgewater 
website, there'll be a sub page for Glow, or go on the mill and, and and just search it in the search bar, and you'll be able to find the ad and click on the on the ticket link there. But tickets are selling now. It runs until the end of December, as Mike says. The garden is one of the sort of treasures of Grace and Manchester already, for sure. and this is an amazing um, event. So thank you so much to them for sponsoring us. So a few weeks ago, you gave a lecture at the University of Manchester in tribute to an economist who you... A geographer, Brian Robson. Brian a, a geographer. And you tried to tell a very, very wide-ranging story in that lecture. I did. The changing economic picture of Greater Manchester, really, over 40 or 50 years. Yep. Why did you want to tell that story in this lecture? Well, I wanted to do it for two reasons. The first is because I think the subject matter of the lecture, the economy of this city and city region, which I use pretty interchangeably throughout, is something that I think has been told generally quite poorly and increasingly poorly over recent years. So, you know, I think the contention I I made is that there is an experiment going on in this city region that is the like of something we haven't seen in provincial cities in this country for probably two centuries. And I don't think that's understood. I don't think it's understood how far the city fell into the early 1980s, which was part of the story I told. And, you know, for the youngsters in the room, when I was telling the stories that we were losing 127 manufacturing jobs every working day for three years, I just think they couldn't believe it. And so I wanted to tell that story and then use that as a pivot point to say, well, look at what's happened since. It's actually extraordinary. And I think people just think that the numbers... For the reason I want to, the second reason I want to come to for the lecture that I'll come to in a second, people think the numbers aren't that great. Well, I think if you look at them in the way I did in the lecture and show that Manchester, central Manchester's job growth has outstripped just about everything else in the country, and that you can, uh, its population is rebounding well. There's a whole wealth of data which say, come on, the bets that we took here as a city look to me as if they're paying off, both in terms of the overall level of growth and in terms of its distributional consequences. And that was the second reason I wanted to do the lecture. I mean, Brian, who I knew since I was a kid, was an empirical researcher. He, he believed in data and numbers and, uh, and, and trying to tell the story of a place by, by its numbers. And that tradition of, of geography, I think, has been dying around us. There are still some who do it, but I listed in the lecture a bunch of people who I grew up reading their stuff and... and They've all either died or, or are deep in retirement now. So the second reason I wanted to tell an empirical story, because I think the, the narrative of this city region has been set by a new group of geographers of a very radical bent who don't really care very much for the data, who don't do data very much, and a lot of whom take an almost a priori view of everything, that if it's to do with the market, it's bad, and if the data don't suit them, they ignore it. And I think as a result of that, the story of what's actually going on in this city region, I think is just untold by mainstream academics. So there's a lot to unpack there, as Americans would say. (laughs) That last reference you made to a radical reading of the city that where the capitalist component is bad and there's too much property development and too much going to private hands. Let's come to that because that's a, p- a topic that we've picked up recently on the mill. And mm-hmm. actually, very generously in your lecture, you referenced uh, some work that we've done on the mill about, about all of that. But let's try and go back to the beginning because we, we can kind of end there. Let's start with your life. Your memories of what was happening economically in Manchester in the 1970s and 1980s. Give me that. Give me the picture. So I found myself living as a kid on the Merseybank Estate in uh, Chalton in a council house. And I, I think I probably lived through the last period in which those homes built for heroes after the First World War and subsequently 
had the archetypal post-war families living in them, you know, mm. and I say this without a, a romantic glow, but I think it is empirically true, that the blokes would go out to work in their cars at Trafford Park or in East Manchester, uh, that women would work very often in part-time jobs, the gardens were neatly tended, the kids all went to the same schools. I remember that vividly, and I remember it falling apart around me. I mean, you remember people losing their jobs, and, you know, the, the culture of the time was of, of, of people coming out of work in, on a Friday and into a new job on a Monday f- for decades. That was how it worked. There were just m- lots of employers, a deep labour market in engineering on Trafford Park and in textiles throughout the city region. And you sense that was falling apart, and I think the, the, the moment it crystallised for me was in fourth year at school, so that'd be in 1981, I had a careers talk with uh, Mr Mulligan, my careers teacher in St John Plessing Roman Catholic High School in Withenshaw. I remember having my careers talk with him saying, because I, I wasn't a, a stellar performer at school, he assumed I would go and be an apprentice, or perhaps he just assumed everyone would go and be an apprentice, mm. all the boys. And that by the time I'd left school, Ferranti and a lot of the other one of firms at the airport are closed. And that sense of a city that was falling apart, I think was there, and I knew it because I remember I remember that happening. And then, and as I went to sixth form, I went to Loretto sixth form, uh, met the woman who became my wife. Her dad was exactly one of those people who's he'd been a welder all of his life, in in and out of welding jobs, in particularly in Trafford Park, but also in East Manchester. Who was never the same again after the last welding shop closed, and that became the the backbone of my family story. Yeah. Can I, I, this might be a slightly odd question, but I've sensed in our conversations before, because we talk, we talk quite a lot, I sometimes sense a bit of anger on your part that people who now live in Manchester, maybe people like me, more middle class people who came to Manchester in, 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 in the good times recently, that we don't get how bad things were, how much people suffered in the deindustrialization. And you kind of have a bit of a feeling of you want to get that across. You feel like people don't fully understand how bad that was and how significant it was. I think there's two two different senses in which that's true. One, I think people who of your age have a knowledge gap. You know, you didn't live through that period. And I think it's, it's important that people like me who did tell the story about mm. what it felt like and that help calibrate people's understanding of the journey we've still yet to travel with the knowledge of our starting point and just how far we had to travel in the first place. And I don't feel an anger about that. I feel a sense of importance in it. Yeah. The thing I feel an anger about, and it's why it goes back to the second strand of my lecture, is the cheap talk of a certain kind of radical politics that fails to give credit to the city's leaders, executive and non-executive, for the unbelievable hard work that they did to bring this city back from the near dead and how little credit is given. I mean, the literature is just full of carping. As I said in the lecture, the single most important document I've seen on this city, the city centre local plan, 1984, no one talks about it. No one talks about, you know, they want to talk about Abu Dhabi. Fine. They want to talk about the role of the private sector. Perfectly legitimate. No one talks about the fact that this city authority elected, the administration elected in 1983, that is in some senses still broadly there, arguably left with Richard Lease, you know, brought back the trams, repopulated the city centre, brought the office market back to life, created the seeds of what we're sitting in right now. And nobody wants to talk about it because it doesn't suit their narrative. And that really annoys me because it's not fair and it's not right. It's not, it doesn't do justice to the people who are choosing to make this city their home now. 
So let's drill down into what you mean. Right next to me on this table, is just happens to be the case, is the book City of Revolution, Restructuring Manchester, which was a series of essays. Quote in, in my lecture quite a lot. At least three of them, I think. By, by, by a series of academics. It must have been published in early 2000s or that sort of period. Yeah. And it's pretty critical of the way in which the city is developing, the way in which it's working with the private sector. There are a range of viewpoints in there, but there can are. you be more specific about when you say the academic community or researchers have built this narrative that doesn't give credit to the city's leaders? Who I don't, I don't mean name names, but give us a sense of what you mean by that. So I think, I mean, most of the people who wrote in that are geographers. And as one political scientist once said to me rather rudely about the geographers, what's the point of a geographer once they've drawn all the maps? And that alludes to the fact that some geographical research hasn't historically paid enough attention to causality. Mm-hmm. Very good at describing what's going on, not always with enough or widely enough used analytical tools for understanding why things have happened and what that means for what might happen next. And what happened at some point, and you know, Brian was a pretty old school geographer, and one of the guys who writes in there, Peter Dickin, was really on the cusp. He was an old school empirical geographer, but started asking himself some big questions at the end of his career. And what happened was that some of these modern geographers came in and started saying, well, all this analysis of market trends, it's missing the point that markets are structurally rigged because of the system of capitalism we live in. And it became, what I'd argue is a dissent, a fairly abstract form of theoretical Marxism, which for some people has no data in it at all. It's all done through assertion. And I'd say, you know, there's not many of the people who write in that tradition who use data in what I call a really intelligent way to help make the arguments they want to make. And I've been accused by more than one person of being a neoliberal simply for using data because uh, it's not the only form of truth, which of course it's, which of course it's not. Mm. And let's be a bit more specific. You are talking about a general critique of, of what people call the Manchester model. Yeah. So people who say, actually... In order to get the economic growth that it's got now, that the new jobs that it's got now, Manchester has had to make a sort of forced pact with the private sector. It has had to open up its doors to property developers. It has developed in a sort of neoliberal sense in which the benefits of growth are uh, not spread. We don't have inclusive growth. And that actually... The rest of the country shouldn't be looking to Manchester because Manchester's gone down this kind of like, yeah, I don't know, neoliberal path. That's, is that broadly... That's the broad critique that I was trying to get under the skin of in my lecture, yeah. You don't think that's the case. You broadly believe, if you read your lecture, you broadly believe that the data shows, and you do say the data is incomplete and it's, yep. it's unsatisfying and you wish there were many more researchers doing proper stuff, but you generally feel that... The growth that Greater Manchester has experienced in the past 20 years has not just benefited wealthy people, it has filtered around, that there are some promising signs when it comes to, for example, lower income people living in in city centre areas, which is something that we looked at as well. Give us your sort of overall take. So I think think there are three key points to make on, on that issue. Number one, has the quantum of growth in Greater Manchester been bigger than elsewhere? And I think the answer to that is yes. Manchester's recent performance, certainly up until COVID, was stronger than pretty much anywhere else in the north. In fact, absolutely anywhere else in the north and most places in the country. Number two, has that growth just been in the city centre? Absolutely, flatly not. You can see it in the GVA data for all the sub-regions of Greater Manchester, especially those where the tram went, which suggests the correlation between where there's been transport investment and where, where you're seeing wealth. And by that, I mean people earning money 
in jobs in the city. And then thirdly, I think perhaps most pointedly, the argument that you hear all the time is that the city's gentrifying and it's pushing out poor people. And the data we did, which is exactly where we built on some stuff that you guys had done, just doesn't support that. The number of people with working class occupations in East Manchester and Hume and Stolford, for that matter, has increased between the last two censuses. So they can't be being pushed out because there are more of them. Now, are there more people moving in? Yes. Are more of those doing working class jobs? Yes, they are. But that was the city's policy. Because I tell you something, one of the things that really bloody winds me up Mm. is you grew up in a city full of poor people. The thing you want is to have a bit more money flowing around the place. Because if you have a wholly poor community, it can't buy stuff. The retail offers crap. You know, the leisure offer ain't great either. Having a place that's got a mix of people, richer and poorer, younger and older, is surely what we want to have. And that's what the city's been trying to do, which, given what its population looked like in 1981, is blindingly, obviously, a sensible thing to do. I can't, for the life of me, understand why it is that, that people who consider themselves very left-wing in their personal lives, use their academic or public lives to make these arguments against a Labour authority or a set of Labour authorities that have had very little room for manoeuvre, falling amounts of public spending over time, a housing market over which they have very little traction and are doing their level best uh, not just to make things okay, but actually to produce some real signs of progress. So let me try and represent that view that you're pushing back against here. So there are people who work, for example, or who, who, who are involved in Greater Manchester Housing Action, which I think some of the, some of the academics you're referring mm-hmm. to are definitely aligned with that group. They would say, OK, if you're so satisfied with how Manchester has done, why do we still have pockets of Manchester that are among the poorest places in the country? A, let me put a few things to you. B, why do we not have a dramatic improvement in those areas? So I, I, when I profiled Richard Lees, there were sections of Manchester that just you just haven't seen the improvement you'd expect in a fast-growing city. And Manchester's overall ranking in the, in the indices of multiple deprivation has not shifted anywhere near as much as you'd expect. Why is there so much homelessness in a city that's, that's supposed to be growing in an inclusive way? And finally, you go around Manchester and the big changes are large, like very tall tower blocks. Clearly the flats are, I don't think they're always luxury as they're described. Maybe the developers want them us to think they're luxury. But they're definitely middle class housing, aren't they? They're for people earning 40, 50, 60, 100 grand a year. That doesn't feel to people like a city that's really trying to look after its poorest inhabitants. So let me, let me throw those things at you. There's a lot of questions there. Yeah. <laughs> Firstly, the city is not building enough housing. Nowhere in this, in this country is building enough housing. And a, a lot of our problems are caused by the fact that, that there is not enough housing of any kind being built. Manchester and Salford are bearing a, probably a disproportionate amount of the weight of building housing in the city region by, by building up, by densification. And yet rents are still rising sometimes 20%, you know. Yeah, I, I, and that's because we're still not uh, building enough. And that's also because we're not building enough, particularly in the sub- suburban areas. I, I argued since I was working for the city region, all the boroughs should be building more and building more in places where people want to live as well as in, uh, in places where they happen to have brownfield sites. So there's not a lot you can do if what you're trying to get is brownfield sites away and the government's brownfield sites um, subsidy, subsidy policy isn't good enough, which this government isn't. Not many governments are, but this one certainly isn't. So it's quite hard to build out the big brownfield form of factory sites. Secondly, a real driver of poverty is a local housing allowance, which hasn't kept up with rents that are rising because of a lack of 
housing supply. Although it's recently been topped up, but 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 it's it's not going to it's not going to make make much of a difference to an accumulated deficit. So that is driving people out of homes that they can't afford, creating housing poverty, creating stress in other areas. It's, it's very hard to pin that on municipal local government that doesn't have those levers of power. And similarly, if what we wanted to do was to have a more balanced set of neighbourhoods in, in the centre, then the public sector is going to have to do some more heavy lifting on the maths that lies behind those developments. Because if what you want to have is 20, 30, 40% affordable, someone's got to pay for that. And I've spoken to developers of every kind I don't believe that there's massive amounts of untapped profit going into those developers because they because they haven't got lots of poor people. I think the the market in central Manchester is is now approaching a maturity, but it wasn't that long ago that even those you know swanky developments needed some subsidy to get them away because Manchester would come from a very dark place. But when you do see it operating at scale, which is why I take particular exception to some of the stuff that's been written about Ancoats. I remember the card room estate. I'm of a generation of Mancunians who only went that side of the great Ancoats street. By the way, I never did it myself. If you wanted drugs or sex... Because you didn't go that side of Great Ancoat Street because it, it was really tough. And then the Cardroom Estate, which I think this, this, the, uh, the TV show Shameless was based on, had a dynamic of its own where normal working class families didn't get much of a look in between the, the various things that went on in that part of town. If you have now got a model of public-private partnership that's delivering private and affordable housing, that's making the place look and feel a lot better than ever it did. You know, within the constraints of a society that's not investing enough in capital, that's not building enough houses, that's not regulating or funding either properly nationally, I find it hard to understand why that critique really lands as, as, as hard on the desk of the leadership of the city as it seems to from the people making the arguments. So let's, 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 let's push back on that a little bit because we're talking about New Islington really when we're talking about, you know, the Ancoats redevelopment. We're talking about this enormous new development of housing for you know middle class people who people no. who come in. Well, well, no. New, new Islington is definitely for people who are coming to do a marketing job or they're coming to work in a financial job or something like that. My guess is that that a lot of the people living in those apartments, mm. in fact, in fact, the you know Manchester Life model, which I've no, never studied in any depth, is absolutely predicated on people at below market levels of median levels of income so so they're not going for people who are working in the big four accountants they're going for people who are earning pretty modest wages in in all sorts of sectors including those you just mentioned you have to remember that a lot of people earning you know 13,000 in this city will be getting a working families tax credit or, 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 or whatever it's called these days because that's the nature of our economy because we we're, we're in a low pay economy. So, so you've got to be careful about where you draw those. Yeah, boundaries. sorry, I, d- I didn't mean they're earning stratospheric money, but they are definitely not people who are struggling. They're people who've got yeah decent mid level marketing jobs or something. The rents can be, I don't know, the rents can be for, for some of those flats in Manchester Life. I'm sure the rents can be seven hundred, eight hundred, you know, depending on on what the place is. I think the point that I was going to make though is one of the criticisms of the council is that that deal just wasn't transparent. It wasn't clear whether the council was going to earn any rent from it. It wasn't clear what's Abu Dhabi getting and what are we getting and what's the benefit. Do you think that's a valid critique that actually it would have been better to explain to the public, look, we're going to get a lot more council tax revenue. We're going to get a lot more economic boost from the spending of these people. But actually, no, we're not going to be earning any rents from this this joint venture that we're doing with, with Abu Dhabi. 
Okay, two or three points on that. I mean, firstly, I don't think scrutiny works very well in local government at all. And having read the, the Sheffield report on Manchester, the um, Central People Cities report, I think that that does seem to me to ask questions about how scrutiny is working in Manchester. And it may well be the case that the council could have taken a different view on some of the questions they'd asked and been a bit more forthcoming. I think that's a perfectly reasonable point to make. Secondly, whenever there's a a transaction of any kind of the council's buying or selling anything, there's always a degree of commercial confidentiality about it. And that applies to to any transaction, not just to ones involving sovereign wealth funds. So I think we've, you know, you've to aim off a little a little bit for that. Scrutiny should pick that up and, and, and perhaps it hasn't done properly. No, the, the real issue I've got with that is the way that that research and others do focus on one particular bit of it. The, the value of, of the land. Just for listeners who haven't read every single piece of economic research, there was a, there was a big <laughs> report out by uh, John Silver and a, a few other academics um, who specifically focused on the Abu Dhabi relationship with Manchester City Council, and, and they particularly zoomed in on on, on the, the way in which the deal with uh, New Islington was structured. So that, that's what you're referring that, to. That Carry is, on. exactly. And uh, which is you know, perfectly, you know, not perfectly good, it's a, it's a brilliant idea to look at that sort of thing. But they focused, I don't understand a piece of research like that, because what the city did was to take a bit of land, which again I remember very, very well, and at the point where they started doing this, no one was interested. The, the, the market was not where it is now. And that you have to remember, it's easy to forget this stuff. They went searching for a long-term partner, because what they didn't want, and you see this in other places, is a little bit of this, a little bit of that, the place never adds up. What they wanted was to get a big chunk of the city moving, and to transfer as much of the risk of that as possible onto a developer so that what they will be able to do is not strangle the deal with a huge burden that could never be afforded, but to get it away knowing that the benefits of the city, and this is the key point, the benefits of the city will come back in a boosted economy with more housing, more people able to live here, creating a bigger pool of labour, which has that what we call the agglomeration effects of producing a richer, deeper labour market, which in turn starts to starts to spiral. And, you know, I've seen nothing, not one bit of research from any of the people who've written on this who really take this sort of uh, project and look at it in the round and say, OK, if there was a sacrifice of, which I don't know if there was, by the way, of value in the land... Was there a payback 10 years on in terms of the economic benefit created? Because if that question comes back negative, then everybody involved has got some very hard questions to ask. If it comes back positive and say, actually, the economic benefit that was created meant that the financial decision they took to take a bit of a haircut up front on on the land value was worth it, then what we all get so excited about. And sometimes the haircut is literally almost giving the, way, the land away. I, mean. I, 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 have no idea, I have no idea what they did. I, and if they gave, I know they gave long leases away, but I know that the, the long leases that they gave away were inherited from the government from whom they bought some of the assets in the first place. So to take us back a little bit, I feel like part of what you're often saying to me when we talk about this stuff is, you can't weigh up the pros and cons of the decisions that Manchester's made unless you understand what they were building from. And the conditions that existed in the 70s and 80s. And the conditions that existed around us in, in our national state now, of, yeah. which, of which, you know, in which local government has pretty circumscribed powers. Yeah. So let's go to the first bit of context. You write in your lecture, I don't think we fully appreciate what happened in this period. You're talking about this period of, of deindustrialization, 70s, 80s. If we did, 
we might take a more benign view on how long it is taking us to recover and a realistic one of our options having surrendered so much productive capacity so quickly. Just before that, you talk about the hollowing out of pretty much every part of every community, sowing the seeds of many of the problems described by Michael Marmer in his reviews of health and inequality. Why was that significant for you to, 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 to emphasise that in your lecture? Because this was a very wealthy city, like um, a lot of other places that grew up in the Industrial Revolution, and it grew up. I'll come to a, a, another critique of the, of the sort of uh, what's called the Preston Pound model in a minute as a result of this. Places like this grew wealthy by trading with the rest of the world. And I, I really strongly believe in the foundational economy, you know, the idea of, of local public and proximity services all being as good as they can and being good employers. But what makes a place wealthy is its ability to earn its corn by selling goods or services that other places want to buy. And all those textile workers and all those manufacturing workers were making machinery or weaving and selling cotton and other textiles that were sold across the world that earned money for the UK. And at one point in the 1860s, I think it was, the cotton industry was responsible for like two-thirds of Britain's export earnings. So that's what made this city wealthy. And as that slumped in the 60s and 70s and collapsed in the late 70s and 80s, what happened was that those jobs that were making things that were sold around the world went and we were left, really, with a residualised set of services, very heavily dependent on the public sector. And what logically follows from that is that the place became poorer. And all of those people who were you know, sitting in, in the Massey Ferguson tractor factory in Trafford Park or Westinghouse welding, uh, making structural steel to be exported or what have you, all those jobs... All the income that came from those jobs went, and that must have meant that the amounts of money circulating around the streets of, of Chalton, Wally Range, Lower Broughton, Failsworth, you name it, must have fallen dramatically. And of course, what happens in markets is some people are more mobile than others, and I remember this vividly too. Mm. Older people don't tend to move very much, so they stayed. People who were unemployed stayed. People who were becoming long-term unemployed stayed. Anyone who could got out. And I grew up in the 1970s and early 80s where we talked about the brain drain as being a common phenomenon across the UK. And, and so you, what I'm, I'm pretty sure you saw, and I've never done research on this, this is, this is, this is a, someone who remembers it as a 14-year-old speaking, what you saw was people, the middle classes, getting out. And so you've got income falling, you've got people with skills who can get out leaving. You know, where does the voice from the black stuff as a, as a TV genre come from? People who couldn't get work here working in, uh, uh, sorry, Alfie's um, pet, working in, in, in Germany or wherever. What all of that does is to weaken the fabric of the place. It reduces the income circulating around it. It reduces the, 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 the wealth of the place. It, it makes the, the retail offer, off, offers of it. Council, council tax going down. Council tax goes down. Though that, that wouldn't have been so bad then because there was equalisation from government. But these days it'd be catastrophic. But institutions weakened. What happened to churches, to trade unions, to... God, God forgive me, even the Freemasons and other things. I don't, not that I, love, I don't like these things at all. But the point is that it, you, have an in, you have a city that's built up on 200 years of a way of doing business. And you pull the rug out from underneath it. And guess what? All, it all starts to fall down. And that's what I think we've been trying to rebuild this last 30 or 40 years. 
and perhaps building jobs and, and houses better than trying to rebuild institutions. I still think there's an institutional hole at the middle of the city, which is why I'm an enthusi- enthusiastic supporter of the mill, because I think you know a really good uh, local journalistic offer is, is a part of that. What do you mean by an institutional hole? I got the sense from your book, you know, your little book that you gave me a few years ago, you talk a lot about the cultural organisations, the Portico Library and the society of this and the society of that and the, the classical music. And you talked about that kind of like nexus of life where people build social capital and get to know each other and stuff. What do you mean by still lacking a bit of that, that institutional hole now in Manchester? I do a lot of work on Cambridge and I think for a city of 150,000 people, the number of places that people who want to get involved in the city can bump into each other at, at lectures, at dinners, at conferences, at business summits, at community this and community that, is extraordinary compared to, to a city of this size that's, what, uh, ten times the size or something, more than that, when actually it's hard to know where to go to meet people and do really interesting stuff on most nights of the week. Funny enough, I've been, been up to two Lit and Phil gigs in the last couple of weeks. One by um, Brian Groom on his book on, on Northerners, which is great. Another one with um, a, a lecture from the RNCM uh, talking about uh, what it takes to be an opera singer. But, but I, I, I brought the average age down wonderfully. It's one of those great things where, you, at my age, age 56, where you can still bring the average age down. What, what, where do smart young people go? I, I set something up a few years ago with friends called Discuss that was about trying to recreate something called Intelligence Squared in London, which brings normal kind of you know tabloid reading people out to come and engage with the issues of the day. Where's the things that do that? And I think the whole of Western democracy has got a problem with institutions, but I think it's particularly acute in places like Manchester or Sheffield or Liverpool, where the stuffing was knocked out of it in such a comprehensive way, and rather than just weakening a lot of these institutions, be they, be they be they religious, be they trade unions, be they business institutions, a lot of them didn't just weaken; they died. And that that for me is the indictment of the medium-term financial strategy and the Thatcher governments of the of the early eighties. Those industries were dying. There's no two ways about it. There probably wasn't a mass long-term employment future, but it was a callous and deliberate way that a combination of fiscal restraint with a rising sterling just drove businesses over the edge en masse and it, it had the effect of killing the rootstock of the city. So you're, you're talking about in your lecture of 207,000 manufacturing job losses in Greater Manchester between 72 and 84, so 12 years. Yeah. That's pretty remarkable. And, and I suppose the reason you're saying all this stuff is because you want people who weren't around then to understand what base is being built on, how far it's had to come back. Exactly. And I, I want people to be a little more charitable when they think about all these service jobs. I mean, there's a terrible romanticism in life where we, where's all the manufacturing jobs? And I get that. And if there were a way of bringing manufacturing jobs en masse, I would vote for it. And there are manufacturing jobs coming back, but they're not en masse. The jobs that are the, that are the traded jobs of the now and of the future are much more likely to be us selling services to the rest of the world. So every time I've, I've seen a, a family of, I think, probably Chinese uh, family swaddled in, in Manchester City uh, gear for the game tonight, they are a service export because they've had to buy pounds to buy their airfare. They've had to buy pounds to buy their football tickets and they've had to buy pounds for their gear. That is a service export, as is every time someone comes from abroad uh, to watch an excellent Manchester Baroque concert or uh, to send their their child to uh, to be a student at the RNCM or the University of Manchester. So all of these service jobs, if someone from outside is buying them at 
every bit as much of an export as somebody selling a piece of cloth to India or a, or, or a machine tool to America. And our romanticism for manufacturing jobs, which I understand and share to a degree, is something we shouldn't let cloud our judgment that as much as we can do to, to bring back manufacturing, and I've done it with Lorna Fitzsimons on textiles in this city, the tradable jobs that make us wealthier than we would be if we just circulated local money on local services comes from exporting, and that's likely to be services. Yeah. I wondered how long it would take you to mention the Baroque. It did take long. So you run Manchester Baroque, or you helped to run it. I do. Uh, amazing local chamber orchestra. And you've got the Handel's Messiah coming up at the cathedral. Yep, Saturday the 9th of September at 7pm. Are there any tickets left? There are no top price tickets left. Um, the <laughs> yeah. very expensive top price tickets, but there are some at 25 and Nice. And if you actually go on any recent mail edition, you should find a link to get 20% off. So uh, please do book that. That's on the 9th of December. Can I just ask you about the psychological impact on, on communities? Because we were actually in um, Lady Barn Social Club recently, where I was getting absolutely turned over by the locals on the snooker tables. And we were talking a little bit about like some of the, some of the people you bump into in, in pubs now or in social clubs or whatever. They grew up in a world where it wasn't necessarily always full employment, but it was like lots of different manufacturing jobs that you knew would exist and that your dad worked in and there was this kind of world that was set out for you and then when it got swept away I understand the economic changes that 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 resulted in but what was like the sort of psychological impact on lots of communities around Greater Manchester where particularly men who are now getting quite old but you know men who are working age yes all around just everything changed. Like that world, of, that world of certainty and kind of knowing kind of what job you were going to do for the rest of your life, that just completely changed. Do you, do you have any sort of thoughts on like how that impacted the psychology of these communities, in particular these men who's just, whose world got transformed? Yeah, I mean, it was funny. I watched a very normal mank bloke wiping the floor with you at snooker that night. <laughs> and I thought it was extraordinary, actually, because it was... You know, he was, okay. he was playing snooker, but he could have been at his lathe or with his welding kit. Because I think being good at something gives you dignity, having workers is dignity. And there's for sure there's dignity in all the service jobs that are being created. Well, a lot of the service jobs are being created. But if you can't access that job because you come from a system in a society that never gave you an education, that normalised ways of behaving, that actually don't fit very well with a modern service employer and its customers, you're excluded. And I, I think that's that's exactly what happened. This notion that you should just go and get a job, the, the first job that's available on a minimum wage and work your way up in the manner of the American dream isn't consistent with the evidence that our work-first policy, although I approve of it in lots of ways, i.e. that you encourage people who haven't got a job to go and get a job, if it isn't accompanied by a ladder, it's not an escalator it's a treadmill you're just that you're there for life and we've talked about it before my father-in-law never never had a a manufacturing job after the the last welding house closed in Trafford Park he had other opportunities and he he finished his life running his own DIY business on the enterprise allowance scheme doing very well indeed but his head never recovered and and like a lot of people this generation he committed suicide because the dignity that was lost to that generation who as you say were never equipped with an education or a social life to be as adaptable as you or I would be if if we came out of work, we'd be okay, we could change. I don't believe that was anything like as easy for people who gave their lives and their, the whole communities were built around manufacturing jobs that were just wiped off the face of the map in, in a decade. And I'm surprised we're surprised that this is a problem. You know, Richard Reeves has written a great book who, who was actually Nick, I think it was Nick, Nick Clegg's chief of staff when he was deputy prime minister now at the Brookings Institute in the States. A great book called Of Boys and Men on the Crisis of Masculinity. I'm not saying this was just a male crisis by any stretch of the imagination, but 
when you look at the data of male jobs lost, I think you can see that it, it was very definitely a male crisis and it plays out in a crisis of masculinity I see all around me, which is why it was so wonderful to watch that working class fella tank you at Snooker. And he, he really did. He properly got me. Um, after giving me a bit of hope in the first, um, in the first frame. He sucked, sucked you right in. He was no fool. He sharks me. And on another table was a former United legend. Remy Moses. I was sat there starstruck. Um, it's actually a sign of my age that I didn't recognise him. So let's talk a little bit more about the future to finish off. I've been working in economic policy for a long time and you go to the odd round table at 10 Downing Street or produce reports that local mayors commission to understand how the economy should change. We've got an election coming up probably where we're probably going to get a Labour government. And I think when you talk to like Labour local councillors in Manchester, there's a kind of an optimism of like things are going to change. We're going to get, you know, maybe better local government settlements. We might, the Greater Manchester might get a bit more power, etc. There's, there's an optimism. Do you share that optimism? Or do you basically think that kind of economic constraints that we currently have in the economy are going to are going to be around for a while and it's it's going to be difficult to do anything transformative. I suppose my question is, can anything transformative happen in the next decade? Yeah, uh, there's no doubt about it. I mean, the first and most important thing is, I think particularly since the Brexit referendum, our politics and the politics of government have descended immeasurably. Just the notion of the government, and there are competent ministers in this government, I'm not saying there aren't, but I remember working both before and after the 2010 election in every department, there would be junior and middle-ranking ministers who would read their papers, action them in a timely manner, and good policy would come out as a result. I think, uh, as Mario Cuomo said, you campaign in, in, in poetry, but you govern in prose. Well, we're trying to govern in poetry, and it doesn't work. And so I, I do think that there's something rather serious and, and round-headed as opposed, uh, 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 in, in, in Starmer's approach that I, d- I don't think we see in the Cavaliers of of the last years and so just, just being, doing that just, just being, being competent being uh, just no, believe, believing in, believing in government and appointing people who were there because they want to do the job of running the department I mean I, honestly I think that is that is really important and I think it's an exaggeration to say that when you look at what the Covid inquiry and, and other things that you can see that that really wasn't happening quite as much as it should have been so that so that will make a big difference but yeah, I, I think there's a terrible fiscal trap awaiting the next government. All sorts of assumptions have been made about growth and public service pressures that are not consistent with what will actually hit. And therefore, I think whoever forms the next administration is going to have some fiendishly difficult uh, challenges. But that's something that we, we, we have to work with. I still maintain that any British government coming to power, and this was proven, you know, Jeremy Hunt gave a big tax giveaway with his uh, national insurance changes and making capital allowances permanent. The markets didn't bat an eyelid. Why? Because he's competent. You might not agree with him, but he sounds like he's, he's, he's read stuff and he knows what he's talking about and he believes it. And, and the, the Treasury's got some, some confidence back. So the next government could theoretically do the same trick again if it sounds competent could go to the markets for big packages of infrastructure spending that would raise the trend rate of growth but what there is not going to be especially if you do that is a huge amount more money for public services and that's going to that's going to be really really tough for people because the NHS education they're all in a in, in something of a mess
So you, you advised New Labour, and when New Labour came in, there was a bit of fiscal headroom inherited from, from, from Major. Well, no, because they, cause, cause the Tories, again, set spending plans in the, in the run-up to the 1997 election, which they never intended to keep, and Ken Clark subsequently admitted that, but which Labour stuck to to prove that they could. Fair but enough. the economy was growing, Fair which enough. is the difference. Fair enough. So you had a growing economy, and it was, things were getting rosier, and that is very different to what your Labour might have now. You will have a very low growth economy. You'll have historically high tax rates. You'll have relatively high borrowing and an awful lot of debt to pay off because of the pandemic. And people like you and Diane Coyle, other, other long-time Miller economists who, 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 are, who are sensible about these things, believe that a key component of British growth in the future and British productivity is regions like Greater Manchester forging ahead and not being so far behind London in comparison to how the second and third cities are in, in Germany and France. You believe that closing that gap and making a, a greater Manchester economy, a West Midlands economy, etc., incredibly strong is like, a, is like a key component to our, our future growth. But you always say that requires huge investment, proper investment. Diane talks about the basic, uh, the, the basic offer that everyone should have. You talk about the, the large infrastructure investment. You often talk about educational investment that's required. And now the context is, in real terms, investment in most departments is going down because of inflation. Jeremy Hunt decided to offer a tax cut instead of keeping up departmental spending in real terms. So it's a totally different economic context to the last time Labour would have come in. So how can you... I understand the thing about government competence, but if you believe in very large transformative investments in places like Greater Manchester, we're not going to get those, are we? Well, what I would say is... I draw an analogy with this city. Graham Stringer, I think, was elected leader of the council in 1983. The city centre local plan was produced in 1984. At that point, we were still hemorrhaging jobs. He stuck with it. He came up with plans. The Pickbick line came and went. Uh, the Metrolink uh, idea was was around in that plan. Didn't, the first line wasn't built in 1992. What the next government has got to do is is set a course of investing in things that generate growth, Migration's got to be part of the story because migration is very, very good for growth. That's where our growth has come from, to the extent we've got any, from our high migration numbers. Liberalising planning, that's relatively cost-free and that help will help, help with growth. I think you could go to the markets for more in- infrastructure investment and, and raise more debt. But the idea that, that you can do those things in the scenario you describe and put a lot of money into public service, I think is really difficult to stand up. So... I have a horrible feeling that unless the next government can persuade the British people that they should pay yet more tax, that, that it's going to be a pretty lean time for public services. That's what happened, isn't it? Labour's, I mean, Labour's never going to say this before an election. Labour's going to have to tax us more than it's saying. It's going to have to borrow more. I mean, it's already said it's going to borrow a little bit more, but it's going to have to borrow a lot more than it's saying. My question, though, is you, you speak to Labour people. You know Labour people. Gordon Brown did his big review into devolution and and handing over power and and constitutional arrangements. That was about a year ago it was announced. And Keir Starmer was there at that, and he was sounding very behind it. And you welcomed that, and I wrote a big weekend read about it. Do you really think, given how difficult the economic situation that Labour will be coming into will be, do you really think they're going to prioritise the investment in the north and the giving away of powers to northern regions and other devolved regions that is required. Because it kind of feels like these constitutional things, you talk about them in opposition, because you can sound very radical without promising any extra spend, and then they disappear. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. I don't know. What I'd say is electing mayors doesn't cost a lot of money. In fact, it doesn't cost hardly anything. And if the mayor of, I don't know, the new mayor of 
Cambridge and Peterborough to pick an area that doesn't have any decent public transport decides they want to build a new public transport system, well, the, they could look at Greater Manchester, which basically built the whole of the initial phase of Metrolink uh, for the price of refurbishing bank uh, and I think it was uh, King's Cross tube stations. You know, mayors with limited budgets can can start to make stuff happen. And and I think if there's a flaw in the assumptions behind your question, it's that there's anything you can do that yields a short-term result. You know, politics and government is not about flashing the pan announcements, or it is occasionally. It's mostly about doing the right thing at scale for a very long time. And it takes time. You know, you can wreck an economy in one bad budget speech, quasi cartoon. Building the sort of track record that saw in, uh, investment in the NHS at record levels, at, um, education at record levels post-97, took fully five, six years with a prevailing wind in favour of, of them. It's going to take twice that length of time with the wind blowing as hard against us as it is at the moment. So to come back to, I think we've been speaking for almost an hour now, which is a lot longer than we were planning to, but just to come back to one of the first things you said, therefore. So in your book, you have this theme of doing the right things over a a long period, investing enough in them. This sort of long-termism that you think has been missing, and I think a lot of people think has been missing from public policymaking. In the Greater Manchester example, you said, right, the first sentence you said in this podcast was, I don't think people understand how important and radical what's happening in Greater Manchester is. And I think what you're hinting at there is another thing that you talk about a lot, which is it's creating what you call a counterfactual. It's creating a bit of the country where you've given them a bit more powers, given a little bit more money, and you've given them a more local accountability via a mayor. And that creates a counterfactual so that you almost like you can compare like a controlled group in an experiment. That's what you think is happening here. And you, in your lecture and today, you, you, you reckon the data is generally on the right track. What could Greater Manchester do next? What's the opportunity? If we were going to do the right things at scale for, the, for a long time, is it about increasing the size of the Metrolink dramatically? Is it about pushing harder on this B-network stuff? Is it about what powers would you want Burnham to have? Tell me about like what a sensible but optimistic idea of what could happen next in Greater Manchester if, if things go well? Well, I think I'm going to answer that mostly economically, but I want to come back to something social and political as well. Firstly, I think the time has come for proper fiscal devolution because the problem we've got here is that if we do the right thing, the tax product goes back to Whitehall and Westminster because they control all the leaves of power. So uh, other than some bits of business rates that have, uh, uh, that have been agreed, corporation tax... PAYE, income tax, all of that goes back to Whitehall. So you've got to have some mechanism that allows cities that do the right things to internalise their growth more, to be able to retain the benefits of growth. But what I always think when I hear that is, okay, but currently we have more tax money spent on Greater Manchester than we generate, right? We, we, we are, everywhere apart from London, basically, is a, is a net taker rather than net giver to the exchequer. So how does that work then? If, we, if, if we're keeping more of our local tax revenue, but we're still taking a lot from Whitehall to cover the, the gap, right? Yeah, but, but, but most of that money will go in pensions, in unemployment and other related benefits. If, you were to, if, if we were to retain a slice of income tax, yes, there'd be less money in the centre, for sure. But if you thought that what you might do is to create a small amount of extra growth as a result of us keeping the money, the compounding effect of that over time would mean that, you know, within 10 years, you'd be talking about some serious change that could be invested in projects. So some, I, I, I think for the first time in the last two or three years, I think fiscal, I've, I've become convinced you've got to have fiscal devolution. The mayor, the councils need to be able to retain 
money from doing the right things. Otherwise, you're just giving them a free pass to do the wrong things. Secondly, I think we've got to build more homes. Is it one of the great frustrations about the length of time it took to get um, what used to be the Greater Manchester Spatial Framework, I forget what it's called now, places over for places for everyone uh, over the line, is that we're just not building enough homes. And building homes generates jobs. Uh, it brings in people to live in those homes, who spend money. It creates a deeper labour market, which means you create more jobs. We just need to build more homes. Anyone who travels across any long-distance line into Manchester at commuter time knows that people are travelling you know, in appalling conditions because they've got to, because they can't find the places they want to live at the prices they can afford. So I think doing all of that is, is absolutely fundamental alongside experimenting with industrial policy and other things that, that we've got to try and find new ways of stimulating jobs in, in innovative small and large companies. They're all things that are necessary, but the thing that I, I want to finish with is actually to go back to one of the critiques of the GM model. Not that I think has full merit, but has partial merit. It's that my great concern, if there's a one-term Labour government that falls because of the economy and the fiscal situation, that what's going to come after it is going to make what we've been through look like a walk in the park, the populism, the dog whistle politics. Now, I'm not saying that is what's going to happen. I, I long for the days of, a, of the Conservative Party I remember as a kid he, I might not vote for it, but I long for it because I think it's it's an important part of a civilised society like ours. No, we've got to think about creating a politics that works for everyone, not just an economics that works for everyone. And I'm not sure that means that we need deliberative dis- decision-making on everything and people's juries for this and referendums for that or romantic notions about inventing manufacturing jobs that won't be there or, or recycling money around poor people, putting no money into that's making a, anyone any wealthier. I don't know exactly what we do, but if the mayors have got an opportunity that I think is easier to seize than our national politi- politicians to make people in their places feel like their place matters. Local leaders have got it, councillors have got it, council leaders, but mayors are really spectacularly popular figures when, when they're good. And I'd love to believe that, that one of the aspects of this experiment, and Andy Burnham's very good at this, is to connect with people and make them feel like they're safe. Because my, my concern is, I think people do feel very safe at the moment. Precarity in the labour market, uh, the world going to hell on a handcart around us, the climate crisis. I do think that that a reconnection of people with economic and political and social prosperity, a sense of well-being, has got to be part of the mix. And that's where a part of the critique is probably right. I don't know what we do about it, and I'm not sure I've seen the techniques that seem to me plausible to work for it, but the search has got to go on, I think. Yeah. And, and the absolute final question I have then is, I, I guess what I, what I slightly took from the lecture and what I take from you saying today is, actually, we're in a really interesting place here in Greater Manchester because we're in a place where... There is an experiment going on about how the British economy could be run in a different way. You write in your book about how powers were taken by the centre from the cities, partly because the cities weren't very good at running sanitation systems, but not, but not because Whitehall wanted loads of powers necessarily. But because that was in the 1860s. And- 1860s. The, the, the cities failed to run their own shops. And so the, the power went to Whitehall, and it's been there very heavily ever since, much more than in France, much more than in Germany, much more than in the US. 
It was given back a little bit, arguably, in the, in the interwar period, but that's yeah. been the drift, and it's been definitely been the drift since the 1980s. Yeah, so we've got a very centralised state, and what you're basically saying is there is actually a different way of doing things that we're pioneering in Greater Manchester, and I think in West Midlands as well a little bit, where you've got more local accountability, more local power, you've got the decision-making being done by local people. That's actually a pretty optimistic... You, you are basically optimistic about that experiment. That's one bit of taking back control that I think will be a very good thing. We'll end on that note. Um, Mike, thank you so much for coming in. wasn't expecting it to be an hour and five minutes, but um, that's how it's ended up. Thank you to our sponsor, um, RHS uh, Garden Bridgewater, and their Glow event, which is pretty much going on right now. So if you've got a feeling a little bit like you need some, a light show or you want to go to a lovely event, um, please go along to that. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to read the kind of journalism that goes behind conversations like this, if you want to read our long reads, if you want to read analysis, if you want to read the kind of um, thoughts that Mike's been having and, and, and dive into some of the topics we've been talking about, please go and subscribe to The Mill if you're not already. It's £7 a month, uh, manchestermill.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Mike, thank you very much. Pleasure. Pleasure.